starting our service. We are coming off of an amazing weekend uh, last weekend for Easter. Just had a wonderful time. Our attendance was 3,231 people last weekend at Easter services. So we are, we are really pumped about that. Uh, 54 people that we know of indicated uh, salvation that they had received Christ last weekend. And so that, that pumps us up. And we're just really excited about what God's done. And um, we are just, uh, just so thankful. And I, I'm always amazed at, uh, at the talent that, that God has given people in our church. And, and I also just want to thank everybody that was involved. And, and if you're involved, if you uh, served last weekend or you normally do or, or even give to support our church or you invited somebody... You know, that's what makes all that happen. Thank you very much for being part of Grace. Thanks for everything that you've done. Not only that, but uh, last month we had a, a baptism Sunday. About 30 people got baptized. We've never really showed that video. Uh, we had a, just a few of them uh, on a little loop in our Easter service. But I just wanted to, that, that's just a great celebration Sunday for us. I don't know if you caught the atmosphere that day. It's just wonderful. And, uh, and so I just want to recap that for you by way of video, and we have another one coming up May 20th, so keep that in mind if you need to follow the Lord in baptism. But, and again, we have another one coming up. Also coming up next month is, uh, and, and I know Jess Kaiser, who leads our women's ministry, she's so excited about this. I don't know how she did it. We have a national known speaker coming in. Uh, Liz Curtis Higgs uh, will be here next month. So ladies, if you want to check that out and you have an opportunity to register, I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to have a wonderful time. I'm sure you guys will, will love it. And um, we're in a new series today. It's called Parables, and, and we're looking at the stories, the simple stories Jesus told that really illustrated profound truth. And this Sunday, I think I picked out the simplest of all of Jesus's parables, or, or the 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 most simple one that we'll look at in this series this time anyway. And it starts in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And it's simple, but this is a parable that every time I read it, especially when I slow down and read it, it, it always makes a big impact on my heart. So Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9, here, and this is uh, referring to Jesus. Here's, here's how it goes. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a context to this. 
And what's happening is Jesus is later in his public ministry, and he's been teaching, and he's got people around him. And then he notices in the crowd that there are people, just like there are today, people uh, who see their behavior in their own eyes as sufficient evidence of their own goodness. People who just saw themselves as good. And by the way, Jesus points something else about them, and that is, and it's true of people today as well, the more you do that, the more you see in yourself a behavior that makes you think of yourself as good, the more you tend to look down on other people, even despise others who don't have your standard or don't meet your standard of goodness. And we see people every day that trust in their own goodness that that they're good enough. But here's what I want to see in this story that Jesus tells. Very simple. And there's an underlying problem that the story alludes to. And then there's two solutions. One's wrong, one's right. So a problem, a wrong solution, a right solution. So first of all, the problem. The problem is simply this. I think underlying the human condition is that we all have this longing, uh, the longing of our soul to know that we're okay, that we're seen as good, acceptable, that that somebody cares about us, loves us, appreciates us for who that we are. And, And so what we typically do is we find people that think that way about us and we spend time with them because that makes us feel good. The, the problem with that is that as human beings, we all have this tendency to hide parts of ourselves, the, the less good parts, the way we think or our motivations or, or sometimes it's behavior that's hidden. And, and so that leaves us in a little bit of a conundrum because we know people, there are some people in our life that think we're good, that appreciate this, like us, But then we also know that they really don't know the whole us. Do you know what I'm saying? They just know most of me, not all of me. And so that that doesn't really satisfy. It leaves us, I believe, when we think about it on a deeper level, it still leaves us hungering for that kind of approval, longing to be right, good, accepted. And that's what Jesus is alluding to there in verse 9. He tells a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and went on to view others with contempt. Now, righteousness is a word that we don't use much anymore. In our, we do at church, but out there in our culture, we don't use the word righteous much. And when it is used, a lot of times it's used in a negative context rather than a positive context. But righteous really just means correct or approved or validated. And this word does apply to our culture, even though it's not used a lot in our culture, because people are starved for someone to affirm them as good. It's a universal problem, because it started at the very beginning. I mean, when God created man and woman, we, we lived with God. We, we didn't need spin. We, we were free to be with God. We were naked and unashamed. 
We didn't need to control what people thought of us. We, we didn't need to hide anything. We'd have to, we didn't need to hide our true self. But when we sinned, we became our own masters, and, and we lost the approval of God. And now we have a hunger that cannot be satisfied apart from God. That, that's our problem. And we, I think, sometimes seek solutions to that with, without even realizing what we're doing. And so that brings us to the first solution, which is a wrong solution. And then that is characteristic of the Pharisee in the story. But when I just say this, the way we read this today is nothing like the way we would take it in the first century because of this simple fact. We hear the words Pharisee today, and we kind of have this negative connotation, right? Oh, Pharisees, yeah, they're the bad guys in the Bible. In the, in the New Testament, during Jesus' ministry, it was just the opposite. The Pharisees were the good guys. The Pharisees were the ones who, who lived according to God's standards, who followed the Bible and the tradition of the people. They protected, protected the tradition of, of the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. They were held in the highest esteem of the people, more so than the Sadducees, who were kind of the wealthy elite, or even the priests. Or, or the scribes. It was the Pharisees that had most favor from the common man because they lived a very strict life of following God. They sacrificed to follow God. They didn't commit any external sins. They didn't violate externally. They didn't do uh, any things to break commandments. They were very careful about that. So careful that they then started building up a tradition and in that tradition, it gave them ways that they could feel a little bit better about keeping these commandments they were trying so hard to keep. But, but make no mistake about it, they pretty much were keeping God's commands externally. And even that is saying a lot, right? Right? I mean, that's something. They were doing that. But the problem is, it was externalism. But in order to understand this parable, you just got to get everybody saw Pharisees as the good guy. And there's positive examples of Pharisees. For example, like Nicodemus in John 3. And then after Christ's death, he was the one that went with Joseph of Arimathea to, to get Jesus' body and put it in the tomb. And so we have these positive examples. But the Pharisees, they were focused on externalism. And Unlike Jesus' ministry, they were totally focused on outside behavior. And this is what Judaism had evolved into. It evolved over hundreds of years into this, this external keeping of the law. And it, that's what made Jesus' ministry so revolutionary is because he came along, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount early in his ministry saying, Whoa, you're keeping the, out, the externals of the law, but you're not looking at your heart. Jesus, remember in Matthew uh, chapter 5 and 6, he's telling people, hey, you say, I haven't committed adultery. Great, but lusting in your heart is really the same root sin. You say, 
hey, I feel good. Thank you, God. I haven't murdered anybody, and that's good. But to even hate somebody is the same root sin in your heart. You're still not sinless. That's what they didn't get. That's what they didn't understand. That's what was part of what was revolutionary about Christ's ministry. And so this man in Jesus' story, the Pharisee, he's confident in his own achievements, but he doesn't look inside at his own heart. He, think, he thinks that he knows the truth, but really he's, he's self-deceived. And we all have this danger of looking at our life through the distortion that comes with comparing ourselves with other people. We can always look at other people who are worse than us to feel better about ourselves. And that's what he's doing. He's proud, prideful. He approaches God on the basis of his track record. Look at my life. And of course, maybe the, the biggest danger of pride is that it blinds us to our true standing before God. We're unable to see where we really stand because of the pride that's in our life. So he prays. And he prays about he doesn't, how he doesn't externally break the commandments. He prays, hey, I don't rob God. I don't commit adultery. I don't do this. I, you know, I keep these laws. I keep these laws. And in the middle of it, he slips in. And I fast twice a week. And when he puts that in there, what's interesting about that is that wasn't the law. He's exceeded the law. The law, really, there was only one day that they had to fast, and that was the highest holy day in Judaism, the Day of Atonement. We'll talk a little bit about that later because it comes up again. But he, he, he only has to fast one day a week, and the tradition started adding a few more days. But this guy's saying, I fast two days every week. And he may be implying the same thing by the way he says he tithes or he gives 10% of all his income, but he says... 10% of everything I received. So, you know, he might be implying that he's going past the law on that too. And so it's kind of subtle, but he's basically saying, as he prays to God, I've not only kept all your commandments, I've gone beyond the call of duty. I've gone over and above what the commandments require. Like God should be impressed with his record of service and and then there's kind of the implication that, that God owes him or he should be in God's favor for that. And so he gives thanks, but his thanks doesn't focus at all, right, on God's grace. Anybody, any of us ever pray this way? God, thank you for me. Thank you that I am so great. I'm so good. Wow, God, I do everything right. Wow, God, thanks. That doesn't sound very thankful, does it? That's this guy. That's how he's praying. And how strange that sounds to us. In our day, there are many people that have that same attitude in their heart. Maybe they're not praying that way to God. But they're convinced by their own merits that they're right and should be acceptable to God if they believe in a God. That some people call this virtue signaling. 
And that's where people, they go out and they take up a cause, a a cause that they feel is good or virtuous or righteous. And then what happens is, is basically they're taking up this cause, they're marching, they're protesting or whatever, but they're doing it in a way to say, hey, look at me. I'm doing this, which makes me more virtuous than you. And then it goes on and it gets a little uglier and it goes on to, so I can look down on you, spit on you, disrespect you, shout you down because I'm virtuous and you're not. I'm better than you are because I'm standing up for this cause. It's the same kind of an attitude. That's how it happens today. It's the same attitude that Jesus is calling out in these people as he tells this story. That's why when bad things happen, people not, don't just question God. They blame God. They get angry with God. They start denying that God can exist. What's behind all that? What's behind all that is the thought that if there is a God... The way I live my life, I should be rewarded by God. God should not let anything bad happen to me because I'm a good person. So because I'm a good person, it goes without saying, they won't say it this way, but the fact that they're mad at God, they're mad at God because God owes them something that God didn't give them. God owes them a good life and God somehow took that away or robbed them of that. But let me remind us, right? God owes us what? Nothing. Right. God owes us nothing. Everything good that we have, it's just grace. The only thing we are owed from God is separation from Him forever because of our sin. But through His grace, He offers reconciliation and forgiveness that we cannot earn. And so that brings us to the right the right solution. If that's wrong, if thinking that we're living a good life and then somehow that gets wrapped up, that that somehow obligates God to bless us, that's wrong. So what's right? Well, the right solution is about the tax collector. Now, here's something about the story that that we sort of miss. When we think about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both these guys are questionable to us. But in the first century, the Pharisee's clearly the good guy. He's doing everything right. He's the Billy Graham guy. And the tax collector is clearly the bad guy. He's wearing the black hat. He's the traitor. He's the leech on society. He's the Jewish person who has collaborated with the enemy, the occupying Roman force, and now he's there supported by the power of Rome to extract taxes, money, from all the common people at the expense of them and their families. And the more money he got, the richer he became. Because in those days, it was a contract to Rome where if you had the authority to extract taxes in a certain area, you owed Rome a certain amount of money. But any amount you got beyond that was yours to keep. And Rome was okay with that. And so these tax collectors became rich because they were basically extorting money from the common everyday people making it hard for them to live. So enter this next character, 
good guy, Pharisee, next guy, tax collector, boo, hiss. Everybody that is in, within Jesus' hearing is going, oh, this is the bad guy. And that's why the story has such a twist in the first century. That's easy for us to miss today. A tax collector would be viewed like Europeans in conquered countries and World War II would view Nazi collaborators like France when, when they were overrun by Germany. That would be the French people who collaborated with the Nazis to help overthrow their own country. The traitors. Or, or maybe today would be a terrorist or maybe a drug dealer who got rich off of selling drugs you know, at the expense of families and children. That's how they viewed tax collectors. And, and so this tax collector goes up to the temple in Jesus' story. Le- Jerusalem, the temple's on the high ground in Jerusalem. He goes up to the temple, which was probably kind of a rare thing because tax collectors, they didn't get in crowds much because they could have a knife slipped into their back. So they're kinda, it's probably an odd kind of a thing for a tax collector to go up to the temple. But unlike the Pharisee who goes right up maybe into the inner court, and lifts his eyes to heaven, the tax collector, he comes up to the temple. And he stays far away on the edge of the court of the Gentiles, far away from where the Pharisee would be. And he beats his breast and would not look up to heaven. And he addresses God much differently. He says, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's interesting that you read in some Bibles, it'll say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And some translations like ours will say, be merciful to me, the sinner. What's going on there is the, the article the is in the original Greek, but it doesn't really make great grammatical sense. So a lot of our modern translations take the the out and put it with an a, which is a little smoother. But the roughness should be there. Because that's what he's saying. He's saying something unusual. Not be merciful to me, a sinner. He's saying, be merciful to me, the sinner. And when he says that, he's not saying, hey, I'm the worst sinners. I compare myself to everybody else. I'm probably worse than these other people that are hanging out at the temple, which could be true. What he's really saying is, I'm not comparing myself to anybody at all. I'm just a really bad guy. God, I'm your enemy. I'm estranged from you. I have no merits to come to you with. I've got nothing. I have no good deeds. I am coming to throw myself down at your feet for mercy. I'm pleading, begging for mercy. That's what he's saying. And it's not just that. This word for mercy be merciful to me. It's an unusual word. We, we miss this in the English, but it's not the common Greek word for mercy. It's a very unusual word that's packed with a lot of meaning for the people in Jesus' day because it's a word that, a part of a word group that's totally associated with this, this high holiday I was talking about, Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. We just had Easter. Well, the Day of Atonement, that was the number one Jewish holiday. And this word would remind all of Jesus' audience of that day, Day of Atonement. And, of course, what's happening on that day, that one day, that's the day that they should, the one day they were commanded to fast, that's where the high priest, after going through some elaborate rituals and killing an animal 
to sort of cleanse himself, would then represent Israel and go up into the temple and not just the outer Gentile court and not just the inner court but not, and not just inside the temple but into the second part of the temple which is the Holy of Holies where a human being would only go there once a year. They would tie a rope onto the priest so if he died they could pull him out because nobody could go in to get him. Once a year, one man would go into the Holy of Holies, pass the curtain into the Holy Holies. They had incense and smoke that would help shield him from the mercy seat of God. And when he did that, he would have a, a goat or that would be ready, and it would be a perfect goat, and he would lay his hands on the goat, and that would symbolize a transfer of all the sins of the people in Israel to this animal, and then the animal would be killed. And that would be a covering for the people for one year, for the nation and their transgressions against God. It would be a propitiation. That's what's packed into this word. Not the normal word for mercy, but a word that made all the people thought about the most holy day of the year and the most holy act that ever happened in Israel. And it was scandalous that Jesus would put those words on the lips of a traitor, a tax collector, a collaborator, an enemy of the Jewish people. And that's exactly what's happening. We can see these words kind of play with, with each other in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where both of these words for mercy are used, and they're used of Jesus. But I, I want to read that for you. It says this, talking about Jesus, Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful, normal word for mercy, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, unusual word for mercy. This is the word that Jesus has the tax collector saying, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, propitiation, this kind of mercy, had everything to do with appeasing the righteous and just wrath of God towards sin. To make an appeasement, to satisfy that wrath in order to be reconciled to a holy God. That's what's in their mind. That's what this word is saying. That's what's so controversial here that we can easily miss. And it's no doubt offensive to Jesus' hearers. And he would put this word on the lips of a tax collector. But the tax collector, in doing that, he's not saying, let me off. He's not saying, overlook my sin. It's beyond that. He's saying, atone for my sin. Take care of my sin. Do something that justly removes my sin because I can't do anything. It involves cost. And he cries out, God, be merciful. No self-confidence here. No self-congratulations. No summary of good deeds. No sense that God somehow owes him. None of that. It's the prayer of the broken. It's a plea for mercy. And his prayer was accepted. 
and he found favor with God in contrast to the Pharisee. So in the story that Jesus tell, tells, the, the bad guy goes away right with God and the good guy who does everything right goes away not right with God. So it's all jacked up. And the people are like, whoa, 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 this is not, it's a twist. It's not supposed to go this way. The good man is lost. The bad man is saved. It's shocking to the people listening. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. Because that's what the good news is all about. That's the message that Jesus came to bring us. And that's how we as Christians deal with this problem of approval. Because we come to learn that just as we suspected, there's no way to know when we've done good enough to be approved by God. And then we learn to our horror even beyond that, that there's nothing that we can possibly do in our deeds to be made right with God. But to our delight, we realize that God loves us anyway. And he offers us forgiveness through what Christ has done as the perfect sacrifice that he shed his blood, not just for a year, to pay for our sins forever. And if we would just have faith in him, we can be reconciled forever. And not just that our sins would be forgiven, but that we would be seen as righteous. That's that propitiation, that's what this mercy that he's asking for means. Declared righteous. There's always a cost involved. That I would just be declared righteous, made righteous. Because I can't do it myself. And for us who are believers, knowing that we couldn't do it, that Jesus accomplished this for us. That's what allows us to have a new life. That's what lets us live with gratitude and joy and, yes, humility. Because it's all God. It's all grace. This week I heard a true story. Um, it was a guy who had been, he had grown up uh, in a, a conservative uh, Bible-believing church. And, and it was a church that emphasized uh, reaching out to people and introducing other people to Jesus, just like we emphasize and and he grew up in that church, but he never felt right with God because the church constantly uh, emphasized that we should share our faith with other people, that we should talk to people about God, point people to God, invite people, you know, all that stuff. That We talk about those same things. But he was a people-pleasing kind of a person. I mean, he, he kind of lived or died on people's approval. And so it's very hard to talk to other people that, that maybe weren't so into the conversation. So he just couldn't do it. He was terrible at it. He tried and tried and tried. He hated it, couldn't do it, didn't like it. And because of that, he ended up drifting away from church. Years later, he came, came back to another church, another Bible-believing church. And he got to know the people, and he was kind of thriving in the church, and things were going well, but he still had this issue. He still had this issue that he never felt right with God. And so finally, although all his friends are there now, he goes in and talks to the pastor, and he says, I got this thing. I, I want God's approval. I want to follow God. I, I want to do what God wants me to do, but I just can't do this share with other people thing. I, I just can't talk to people about Jesus. I can't. 
I can't explain to people the gospel. I, I, it's hard for me to invite anybody even to come to church to hear it. And the pastor said, that's okay, God loves you anyway. And the guy said, what? no, you don't understand. God, I'm a, I'm a believer. God is telling me to do this, and I'm not doing it. And the pastor says, well, you don't have to do that for God to love you. Yeah, you're supposed to do that, but God loves you anyway. And the guy leaves, kind of just scratches his head. Well, not what he expected. And he starts processing that and thinking that through as he walks out the door. A few weeks later, uh, the pastor is approached by a bunch of friends of this guy. And they all come and said, hey, we heard our buddy had a meeting with you a few weeks ago. And he says, yeah, yeah, we met together. He says, what'd you say? And the pastor goes, well, what do you mean? He said, this guy, he's, he's all over the place. He's happy. He's joyful. He's telling everybody about God. He's inviting people to church. He's explaining to people the gospel. He's doing all this stuff. He had told us he could never do that. What would you say? And he said, I just said he didn't have to. That God loved him anyway. You see, when we realize that it's not our works that earns us approval from God. When we come to the realization that, hey, it's all grace. It's all a gift. We deserve nothing from God. But God is offering us as a gift righteousness that we would be declared righteous. And we can receive it simply through faith. And from then on, we are seen as righteous. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Our sins have been borne by Him. They will not ever be held against us again. Through faith, it means everything. It frees us to follow Him with joy. It's not about us anymore. And, and we want to serve Him, not to earn God's favor, not to kind of make God owe us, not to make sure that we're not in trouble. We serve just out of gratitude and love and joy. It changes everything. When we come to the realization that everything we have, that's good. Everything is grace. It's all a gift. It's all from God. And so that brings us to, where are you at with this? This is the gospel. This is what turned people in Jesus' day upside down. But I'm telling you, it's the same thing today. People are out there working to be respected and to see themselves good. People are out there to try to get certain people's approval. People are out there protesting to show how virtuous they are with the implication that other people are not as virtuous as them and they don't deserve to be treated as such. And it's all wrong because we have no virtue in ourselves. It's all a gift from God. Are you angry with God? We're not piling on. 
There's, there's God followers in the Bible that were angry with God. They were wrong to be. Because God owes us nothing. And he offers us everything. For a believer, everything is grace. And so we live in joy. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for the day and we thank, thank you for your, your grace toward us. Lord, and all those of us who are believers at some point in our life where we said something like this and our hearts cry to you, our souls cry to you, saying, be merciful to me, the sinner. And God, you granted mercy, and you did it quickly. And God, we could never earn it. And God, we thank you, and we're humbled by that. And we're filled with joy and gratitude. Lord, that motivates us to want to follow you with our life and change everything about us to follow you. And Father, for those who are here that hasn't, have not come to that step yet, Lord, I pray that you draw them to yourself, help them to see, give them eyes to see and ears to hear the words from the lips of your Son. That they would see themselves as we all do in this parable and would cause them to seek mercy from you. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace and most of all the sacrifice of your Son to atone, to appease the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope to see you next week. We're going to dive into some more parables. It's going to get a little more complicated, but it'll be great. Thanks.